I got to get used to this because Michael told me that I only had 50 minutes in Columbia. We preach an hour. So, you know, I'm going to, some of you guys are going, oh no, but you know, it's, it's, it's going to be an adjustment, but I'll do my best. And if I say something in Spanish, I haven't preached in English in like over two years. I want to talk about something today. Normally when I, when I preach, I, I'm kind of like Pastor Frank, I do a lot of stuff on counseling and I, I have a theory that sometimes you can preach a sermon and you can counsel a whole bunch of people all at the same time. And so that's kind of what today is. It's going to be kind of a counseling sermon. And, you know, I would say this is to help Frank, but based on the topic, it might be to cause some more trouble for Frank. But, you know, he's not here, so it's okay. I don't have to ask permission. But one of the things that we see is that if we examine Scripture, we see that one of the key principles of the Christian life is that we are at war. If you don't see the Christian life as a war, it's probably because you're already losing the fight. And as Christians, we have to maintain a wartime mentality and can never really see ourselves as living in peace because we're not. Our enemy is the devil and Satan would love to keep you convinced that there is no war because it means that you aren't actively fighting against him and, and his purposes. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And, and because we have that enemy, this is why the Bible often tells us to be of sober spirit, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And, and so oftentimes we we, we, need to, we always have to keep that sober attitude and mindfulness of, you know, we're not living in peace. Maybe we're not in a physical war, but a spiritual war we certainly are in. And, and, but it, the fact that it's a spiritual war actually means that it's more deadly than a physical war because it affects our eternity. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And we as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Notice what Paul is saying here. He says, true spiritual warfare, the real war that you're fighting is actually a battle for your mind. It's a battle for your mind. It's a battle for the way that you think. We do not need to cast out demons to fight the war, the spiritual war that we're in. We, we don't need to, win, we need to win the battle of our thoughts. That's where the spiritual battle is fought. And we need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This means that as we constantly say in biblical counseling, that you have to think biblically in every area of your life. And you need to understand how the enemy attacks us. Many of you guys are in the battle of sin, and you might feel like you're losing the battle because you don't even know how the enemy's fighting. You don't even know where he's coming from. Why do I keep falling in the same things over and over again? And so you don't even know how he's attacking. And, and so that's what I want to help you today, to think, to recognize at least one area where he attacks us in the way that we think. Because he, he tries to convince us to believe things that aren't true. And if he can try to convince you, if he can believe, get you to believe things that aren't true, then he's already well on his way to causing significant damage in the war. But probably one of the greatest ways that Satan deceives us and convinces us 
or, 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 or confuses us in the way that we think is that he tries to convince us that we're not really that bad. We're not really that sinful. Sure, nobody's perfect, but we're not that bad. I mean, we're not prostitutes. We're not doing drugs. I mean, yeah, sure, we've got our struggles, but we're not that bad. We're not, and, and what he does by doing that, when he tries to convince us of that, either before salvation or after salvation, what he's doing is he's attacking the doctrine of biblical responsibility. Biblical responsibility. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at what Scripture says about the topic of personal responsibility and how Satan tries to convince us that we are not responsible for our own actions. We will look at the hard truth of personal responsibility the enemy of personal responsibility. And lastly, we'll look at the danger of victimization. And then we'll turn to practical application. First, I want to look at the hard truth, the hard biblical truth of personal responsibility. It is clear from the teaching of scripture that man is completely responsible for every single thing that he does, whether good or bad. He will be held accountable for every decision he makes and for whatever action he takes. And I'm going to give you several passages that you can write down and look at later, which basically prove the point that the Bible says, you're, you're guilty for what you do. You're responsible for what you do. Isaiah 3, 10 through 11. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with for him, for what he has dealt out will be done to him. Romans 2, moving to the New Testament. There's more, by the way. I'm just selecting certain ones. that I mean, I could do a whole study on this whole part, but this is just point one. Romans 2, 5 through 10 is another key one. It says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay to each according to his works. He will repay each according to his works. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and anger. Verse 9, there will be affliction and turmoil for every soul of man who works out evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. And also, but glory and honor and peace to those who work good. Matthew 12, 36 through 37 but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. You spoke it, you're going to answer for it. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Colossians 3, 23 through 25. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than for, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ, for he who does wrong will receive the consequence of the wrong he has done, and that without partiality. Revelations 20, I'm not going to read the whole thing, 11 through 15, says at the, end of, at the end of time, when God judges, he's going to pull out his book, and he's going to judge every single person based on their deeds. What you did, he's going to judge you for. And in that day, there will be no excuse Another way that the Bible speaks of this is when he's, is, we, we might call it the concept of sowing and reaping. This is Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. 
What are we saying here? All of us make choices. They are our choices. And every choice that you make has a consequence. That, that is simply a reality of the universe. If someone says, I can do things and I can make decisions and I can say and do certain things and there will be no consequences, what they're saying is the rule that God has established in the universe doesn't work, isn't true. But it doesn't matter what you say. And by consequence, I don't always mean bad. We think of the word consequence as something bad. But if I say good things, that will reap good fruit, either in this life or the next. If I do or say bad things or think bad things, that will reap negative consequences, either in this life or the next. So we might say, well, I didn't get any consequences. Well, that's because we're not dead yet, and we're not before God, who's going to ultimately right every wrong. So depending on what the choice was, the consequence may be positive or negative. And we often think we can avoid consequences, and maybe we can for a little bit, but it isn't possible to avoid them forever because God is keeping track of every single thing that we say, do, think, and desire, all of it. What you sow, you will reap. Good choices bring good consequences. Bad choices bring bad consequences. And because you own your choices, they're your choices, you also own the consequences. They're your consequences. Why is that important? Because what the Bible is saying is you are responsible for everything that you do. Now, you might be saying, I don't don't have any problem with that. I don't have any problem with that. Not yet. Because number two, we're going to talk about the enemy of personal responsibility. The enemy of personal responsibility is victimization. Making yourself out to be a victim. According to 2 Corinthians 10, something I already quoted, verses 3 through 5. If you want to win the battle of the mind, you have to start by taking ground in the spiritual battle, or just to start taking ground. We have to understand Satan's ploy, and we have to combat it with truth. If you know that Satan is lying to me in a certain area, then I need to attack that area, and I need to attack it with the truth. With any spiritual reality, Satan wants to twist the truth, and the doctrine of personal responsibility is absolutely no different. He does so by trying to convince us that we are victims. Satan loves for us to play the victim. But this is a lie. Because if there's one phrase I want you to remember for this entire sermon, it is that you are never a victim of what you do. Write that down. You are never a victim of what you do. You might say, well, hold on. Because when we talk about what what is the definition of a victim? It is someone who is acted on by the force or another force or another agent that often leads them to be negatively affected. Being a victim implies coercion or force. We might say, I'm helpless to avoid that decision because I was forced to do it. That is what a victim is. But so Satan has got a lie. You're a victim. And I can guarantee you with 100% fact that every single person in this room at one time or another plays the victim. Every single one of you. And you might say, well, not me. Wait, hold up. It's coming. But you understand why Satan does this, how Satan tries to attack the doctrine of personal responsibility. We have to go back to Genesis 3. And then y'all can go with me there. Genesis 3, verses 9 through 13. We got to go back to the fall. Where did this all start? We need to know because Satan is attacking you in the same way today. And if you don't know how he's attacking you, you're going to lose. So let's, we got to learn. Genesis 3, 9. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? They've eaten of the fruit. 
He's told them not to eat. They did it. Now they went and hid. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, and the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Was it my fault? I didn't do it. And here we see something fundamental to sinful mankind. We might call it an absolute truth of humanity after the fall. With the first sin came the first attempt to make myself out to be a victim. With the first sin comes the first attempt for man to make himself out to be a victim. God asked Adam a simple question. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? It wasn't that God didn't know the answer. He's giving an opportunity to Adam to find forgiveness and grace. He was opening the door for gospel grace. But instead of running toward the God of mercy who loves to forgive, in his shame and fear, he blamed others. First, he blamed God and indirectly Eve. His self-defense essentially goes something like this. Hey, listen here, God. I was doing pretty good in the garden until you decided to give me her. Now, I don't want to point that out, but it's kind of how it seems to me. It's the woman that you gave me. And and, and so what he's doing is he starts to say, the idea behind what he's saying is, listen, I would have never done that. The woman's at fault. Actually, you are at fault for giving me the woman. I am an innocent victim here. I was fine. I'm a victim. He then asked the woman the same question, giving her an opportunity for grace. And she responds the same way. Victim. I mean, it was the serpent who deceived me. In fact, I can't even hardly be sure that I did anything wrong. I mean, the serpent, he got me. So what is she doing? Playing the victim. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned, mankind has been following their example and looking for any and every excuse that we can find to make ourselves out to be not as guilty as we are, to make ourselves out to be victims. In fact, we are extremely adept at this game. We are super good at this. So why does this temptation exist? Why are we tempted to minimize responsibility? Why are we tempted to play the victim? Because we're sin is present is shame. Where sin is present is guilt. And so we tend to minimize the shame and the guilt by blaming other things. It doesn't feel good when we sin. It makes us feel bad. It brings bad consequences. And, and, and we don't like that. So what we try to do is say, well, at least it wasn't my fault that that happened. Really, I'm a victim here. Now, I should qualify something. What I'm not saying is that there's no such thing as a victim. I'm not saying there's no such thing as a victim. But I would say it's far, far less than we think, especially from God's perspective. At times, we are victimized by other people, by other people's sin. At times, that is true. And I know that there are probably people in here who have been sexually abused or they've been beaten by their husband or or maybe even their wife. Sometimes that happens. And they might be experiencing things and horrible things have happened to them. 
And they would say, well, I was a victim. And I would say, yes, that's true. If somebody does something horrible to you, then you are a victim in that moment. Let me say something here that's going to be probably maybe a little controversial. But how you respond to that victimization is 100% your fault. We are victimized at times. But how we respond to that victimization is our fault. And, and I have to be careful here. And I'm not trying to be callous, but I'm trying to help us to think biblical. If someone rapes me when I'm five years old, in the moment of rape, I am a victim. Absolutely. No, no questions asked. But the moment that the abuse ends, I am now responsible for what I do. I am now responsible for how I respond to that horrible thing that happened to me. I can either respond in a sinful way or I can respond in a righteous way. That's the truth. Is it understandable, humanly speaking, that I would be plagued with anxiety, fear, bitterness? Yes, absolutely. Is it understandable? Yes. Does that make it okay? And the answer is, biblically, no. When God on judgment day asked me, why were you so bitter for 55, 60, 70 years of your life? I cannot say, because bitterness is a sin, Unforgiveness is a sin. I cannot say to God on that day, it wasn't my fault. You don't have no idea what happened to me when I was a kid. First off, he does know. And, and, and second, God might rightly respond. You might say, but I was abused by XYZ person. And God would rightly respond, I get that. I'm not asking you, why were you abused? You were a victim in that sense. I'm asking you, the 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20 years after that, why were you sinning and being anxious and fearful and bitter? Because that was you. That other person died. That other person left. You never saw. That's not on them. 50 years of bitterness, that's on you. And I'm not going to just remove that from what happened in the book that records every deed you've ever done just because it's an uncomfortable reality. You did it. And so oftentimes we find that we, we make these excuses for why we do things. If my brother hits me, kids, I'm a victim. He sinned against me. But if I get angry, that's my choice. And if I hit him back, that's my choice. Then now I'm guilty. So what happens when you talk to your kid? What in the world did you just do to your brother? He hit me. Victim. Not even my fault. I can't get in trouble for that. He did it. Well, what did you do? He hit me. What did you do? Well, I hit him. But because he hit me. And what they're saying is, it's not even my fault. I mean, I, that basically shouldn't even count in the book that God's recording things because I'm totally innocent here. I'm just responding to what was done to me. If I'm angry and I come home from work, I can't blame my boss who mistreated me for coming home and mistreating my wife and kids and kicking the dog. Why are you being so irritable with everybody. I just had a long day at work. Victim, it's not even my fault that I'm angry. It's not even my fault that I'm irritable. If you knew what my boss said to me, if you knew the stress that I was under, if you knew how tired I am, that, we're not saying those things. All we're doing is saying, you know, I just had a long day at work, aka it's not even my fault. I'm a victim here. And so really that's not even sinning. That's actually okay. 
why are you acting this way? Oh, no, you don't understand. He's bipolar. Well, he's doing a lot of horrible things. I know, he's bipolar. And what we've just done is saying, you know what? Actually, none of those horrible things that he did actually even count because he's a victim. And so we just can't do that. And so I say we're all guilty of this because, yeah, maybe I'm angry and bitter over something horrible that happened to me 30 years ago or a husband or a wife that cheated on me five years ago, a year ago, a month ago. But guess what? We do this in subtle ways like I just mentioned. We get angry. I'm just hungry, victim. That's what we're saying. You know, why are you doing what? Well, if you, you know, if my wife, if my husband would lead me, then I would submit. Oh, so it's not even your fault that you're not submitting. Well, if my wife would respect me, then I'd lead. Oh, so it's not even your fault. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize, I didn't realize that you were so innocent here. And we do this all the time. Sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in bigger ways. But it's all the exact same thing. We make excuses so that we feel like I'm not sinning. And to convince myself that I'm not actually guilty. So I repeat, you are never a victim of what you do. You are never a victim of what you do. Notice I didn't say you are never a victim of what others do to you. No, I said you are never a victim of what you actually do. So that, we've seen the doctrine of personal responsibility, and now we've seen the enemy of the doctrine of personal responsibility, which is victimization. Now, we need to see the danger of victimization. Okay, we all do this. Who cares? What's the point? There's a tremendous danger that comes with convincing ourselves that we're the victim. Because if I convince myself that I am a victim, listen carefully, then there's nothing to confess, there's nothing to repent of, and there's nothing to be saved from because it's not even my fault. It's not even my fault. Being a victim may allow you to maintain your self-righteousness and your pride. If it wasn't your fault, then you can't be that bad and you can't be guilty. In fact, you will often feel much better about the situation if you can convince yourself that it was never your fault in the first place. You might feel better about yourself. The problem is with being a victim is that Jesus didn't come to save victims. Jesus didn't come to save victims. He came to save sinners. And victims aren't sinners because it's not their fault. Jesus didn't come to save victims. He came to save sinners. Mark 2, 16 through 17. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they were saying to his disciples, he's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, those who are healthy don't have need for a physician. I did not come, but only those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. The interesting thing about that story is that that guy was a sinner. He just didn't think he was that bad. And so he didn't think he needed a savior. And so what's really interesting is that Jesus is saying to this guy who is a sinner, who desperately needs salvation, who is sick, he's saying, I didn't come for you. If you don't think you're sick, if you don't think you got a problem, I didn't come for you because I came to save sinners. I didn't come to save people who think they're healthy because nobody's healthy in terms of the spiritual disease called sin. And so what happens is by making himself a victim, and here's the real danger of making ourselves a victim, same as that Pharisee, is that you rob yourself of the opportunity for grace. By making yourself a victim, you rob yourself for the opportunity of grace, forgiveness, and help. By clinging to your innocence, you are saying, I don't need Jesus. I'm innocent. I'm a victim. 
And so what we have is something that is very ironic that while convincing myself that absolutely nothing is my fault, it may, may, may help me feel better, it is actually far more hopeless and far more depressing. Because if, if you truly are a victim and nothing that is happening is your fault, then there is absolutely no hope that you have for any change. You're just a little pinball being bounced around by what everything else in the world happens to you. And the Bible doesn't speak that way. Because since victims have no control over what happens to them or their surroundings, there's also no hope that change can happen apart from things changing in their environment. Well, I guess my marriage is never going to change if my husband doesn't change. Well, I guess I'm never going to have joy if such and such doesn't happen. I guess I'm, I'm never going to be happy again if my cancer doesn't go away. Why? That's a hopeless situation. There's zero hope in playing the victim. Although temporarily, it makes me feel a little better because I can convince myself that the badness that I'm expressing actually is in my fault. But if someone admits that they are wicked, they accept their own responsibility for their actions, and they see their need for help, there is unlimited hope. Because God came to save those types of sinners. In fact, the surprising good news of this message, the title of this message could be the surprising good news is that you are a million times worse than you think you are. And you might say, well, how is that good news? How is it better news that I'm 50 times worse than I think I am? Because it means God's grace is a million times better than you thought it was. It means God's grace is better than you thought it was. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, victim, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, victim, we make him a liar and this word is not in us. There are so many ways that this plays out and we make ourselves victims. But I want to discuss certain principles that I think are more common, kind of categories we might say. So an application of this thing, this principle might be, number one, you can't blame your past. You can't blame your past. Your background and your circumstances are influential, but they're not causative. They're not determinative. Influential, yes. Determinative, no. One of the biggest things that we can blame our current sinful behavior on is our childhood, our upbringing, or past events. Something that happened to me sometime in the past is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now. That's just the way I am. I, my dad was an alcoholic, or he was an angry person, and he never built people up with word, his words. He was a critical person. And you know what? It just runs in the family. His, his grandpa was that way. He was that way. And so I'm that way. It's just the way I am. Victim. Let's call it what it is. I was abused as a child, so I suffer from anxiety and irrational fear that the same thing might happen again or to others. Because just because it happened once doesn't mean that it's going to happen again. It might. But I, to walk around dominated by fear and anxiety that such and such is going to happen or, or one male mistreated me, so now I distrust all males. 
well, that's not right. Well, but that happened to me in the past. And so that's why I have so much mistrust. Well, I understand that that happened a long time ago. So what's the excuse today? That's impactful. That's influential, but it's not determinative. It doesn't mean that you have to act a certain way because something happened way back when. My parents never disciplined me and it's their fault that I turned out bad. Well, that's influential, but is that the reason why you're so sinful? No. What role does our past play? Your background or your past circumstances are influential, not causative. No one will escape judgment because they had a tough background on judgment day. What in the world was this whole life that you just lived? Yeah, I know. I mean, I grew up in a rough neighborhood, never had good for, I mean, yeah, it was terrible. I had my father was never around and God's going to go, oh, well, in that case, I guess we could just remove the last 50 years of the book because, well, you know, all that page two really determined everything else. And so, you know, everything, well, you're good. Come on. That's not how God, who is impartial, and God, who is just, that's not how he works. God is impartial and just, which means every single thing that you do, you will be judged for, for good or bad. Let's go to Ezekiel 18, because Ezekiel 18 talks specifically to this idea that I'm a victim of my past, that I'm really... My past determines how I act today. And the context of Ezekiel 18 is that the Israelites were sinning and when they were confronted with their sin and God was telling them, I'm gonna punish you for their sin, they proceeded to blame their heritage. They blamed their parents. Verse one, then the word of Yahweh came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Basically what that phrase means is, Listen, our fathers ate sour grapes and it's because they ate sour grapes, we're clenching our teeth. It's like, it's like, oh, you know, you sour and you like, they're like, our, fa- our fathers ate the sour grapes, they acted poorly and now we're being punished for it. How's that work? Verse two, all right, verse three. As I live, declares Lord Yahweh, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul, uh, the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. The soul who sins will die. You're not going to continue to blame your background and your heritage for what you're doing. That doesn't work anymore. Verse five. But if a man is righteous and does justice and righteousness, then he gives a list in verse nine. In verse nine, he says, and walks in my statutes and my judgments and is careful to do the truth. He is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord Yahweh. If you do what's right, you'll live. Verse 14. Now behold, He has a son who has seen all his father's sins, which he has done. Wow, okay, here we got a guy who his father was a bad guy. His father was a sinner. A son who has seen all his father's sins, which he has done. And he saw all this, but does not do likewise. Hold up, that implies that it's possible to not do what was done previously. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He starts to name the sins of the father. This guy was not good or defile his neighbor's wife, or mistreat anyone, or retain or pledge, or commit robbery. Okay, this guy's bad. He's got a bad upbringing. But he gives bread to his hungry. This is what the son does. He gives bread to the hungry, covers the naked with clothing. He turns his hand away from the afflicted, does not take interest or increase, but does my judgments and walks in my statutes. Listen, he will not die for his father's iniquities, yet he will surely live. Interesting. The father was bad. The son can be righteous. It's possible. 
It may be harder if his father's influenced him that way, but it's obviously possible. And God says, if the son doesn't do what the father did, then he'll live even though the father will die. As for his father, verse 18, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, did what was not good among his peoples, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? But the son has done justice and righteousness and kept all my statutes and done them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins will die. The son will not bear the iniquity of the father. It's not, you can't blame your father for what you do, nor will the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. You will give an answer for what you do. You are not a victim of your past. And that's why you act the way you act today. You make your own path, either of justice and righteousness or sin and wrath. You are not a victim of what you do. Second situation, you cannot blame your background and you cannot blame your circumstances. You cannot blame your circumstances. My, my wife is a nag and she has such a strong, personate, dominant personality so you know what? What's the point of even trying to serve her? Because nothing I ever do is good enough and I don't try to lead because she doesn't submit. Did your wife make you a passive husband? No. You chose to be a passive husband, sinfully, although your wife might have made the temptation easier to fall in. Well, my husband doesn't do this and he's not respectable and he's not even a believer and that's the reason why I don't submit. Does your husband make you not submit? No, you determine that. Now, it might be harder if your husband is not a respectable man and he's an unbeliever, or we blame the fact that I'm tired and it's been a long day and it's been a long week and I'm just, it's just hard and, and you know, poor little me, I'm not even guilty here. And I do this, guys. I, do, I remember one time I was, I was really internalizing this and meditating on this, and, and I started grumbling about something. I, I, actually, I preached this sermon in Cali, and we're driving home, and the guy in front of me is going so slow, and the roads are terrible, and I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. And my sweet, lovely wife says, I know you're a victim of that guy's driving, aren't you? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I am. And I mean, the point was clear because like literally I'm grumbling and complaining about that guy's going so slow. And what am I saying? Victim, it's not even my fault that I'm mad. It's that guy's fault. If he would drive the speed limit, then I wouldn't have this problem. And it's like, it's so easy to fall into that trap of blaming other people for why I'm sinful. The Bible says that our sins come from within us, not because of what happens to us or around us. Why are you depressed? Because I've got cancer. Well, that's not the reason you're depressed. That's the reason maybe you feel bad, like health-wise. But your response to that bad news is your fault. And you can either respond biblically and righteously, or you can respond sinfully and grumbly, or whatever other sinful manifestation there is. But that's not the cancer's fault. That's your fault. Mark 7, 18 through 20. And he says, are you lacking understanding in this as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him? 
Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and goes to the sewer. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, covetous, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolish, foolishness. All these things proceed from within the man. We might think of our life, our heart as a field of dirt. It rains, and what happens? Weeds pop up. Did the rain put the weeds in the soil? No. The sun and the rain are the circumstances that create an ideal environment for what is already in the soil to come out. So when the guy is driving slowly in front of you in traffic, or when we get a leftist president that you don't like, those are not causing you to sin. That's the sun. That's the rain. That's creating a perfect environment for the sin that's already in your heart to come out. And when your wife doesn't submit and your husband doesn't lead and your kids won't obey, and when your boss is a jerk and gives you too many hours and doesn't pay you enough, that's the sun. That's the rain. But whatever comes out is the heart. That's you. That's like a sponge. The sponge might be full of water, but when it's squeezed, the water comes out. Me squeezing it didn't put the water in there. But sometimes the pressures of life and suffering and different things reveal what's already in our heart. Number three, we can't blame demons. This was a huge one in charismatic circles. The devil made me do it. I have a demon of lust. I have a demon of laziness or of anger. This is just another way of saying against the scriptures, I'm not the problem. I'm a victim here. The problem is not that you have a, de a demon. The problem is that you have a wicked heart that wants to sin and a demon presents an opportunity and I grab it. As a Christian, a demon can't make you sin. They just present you with circumstances that make it easy to do what you already want to do. James 1 13 through 15, let no one say when he is being tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried in, away and enticed by his own lusts. Number four, we cannot blame the body for spiritual issues. Perhaps one of the biggest and most common ways that we make ourselves victims today is by appealing to psychology or mental disorders or things like that. The Bible says we are bipartite beings. We are body and soul. Some things are biologically caused. Most are not. If I'm anxious, it's not because I have an anxiety disorder. Psychology has presented this entire world where we say everything is medical. Everything is scientific. And so the solution is not repentance. The solution is a pill. I'm depressed. I'm bipolar. Why are you depressed? We have no idea. You just show symptoms that you are. And so someone says, I'm depressed. And so I stay home and I sleep all the time and I neglect the responsibilities of my family and I don't go to work, and, which are all sinful things. And we say, well, why are, you letting every, why are you letting all the balls drop? Why are you completely failing on all your response? It's because I'm depressed. Victim, it's not even my fault that I'm doing these things. My body is making me do this thing. And psychology has offered us an entire tray of things that we can pick and choose as reasons why I'm not guilty for why I'm doing. A ADHD. That's my, kid has, my kid just acts the way he does because he has ADHD. No, ADHD, biblically speaking, is lack of self-control. Discipline heals ADHD. 
I remember one of my professors in seminary said, I had ADHD too until I went to my class that was taught by the football coach. And in that class, miraculously, my ADHD disappeared. That's true. I had the same thing. And one of the biggest indicators, I would love to go deeper in the issue of psychology, but I, I, unfortunately I can't, I'll let Frank deal with that. But one of the biggest indicators that I'm not a victim is that you can almost always find someone who has the same experience or worse, or the same circumstance or worse, and they're doing just fine. And they're responding in a biblical way. Then what's the difference? You have two people in a traffic jam and one is pounding the steering wheel angry and the other person is saying, oh, praise the Lord, now I can finish my makeup. It's the same traffic jam. It's the same circumstance. What's the difference? The person who's experiencing the circumstance. One person was sexually abused as a child and grows up angry and bitter and whatever. And another person was abused in a far worse way and they grow up to be a person who's healthy and they have a a stable life and a stable family and they use the abuse in the past as a ministry to help others. The exact same thing or worse and one responds terribly and the other responds totally righteously. What's the difference? The person, the heart. Two people lose their job or their spouse. One goes into terrible depression while the other continues on with a normal sorrow and quickly finds another job or turns their grief into a a ministry to widows. One person has two kids and is always angry, stressed out, and discouraged. Another has six or ten, and and the wife is patient and calm. And it's like, what's the difference? Obviously, it's not the number of kids. It's the heart of the person caring for the kids. Two women have unbelieving husbands who hate the church. One cries out to God, prays for her husband, serves him without complaint, as 1 Peter 3 says. The other is angry, responds to her husband by nagging him, criticizes him, and is disrespectful. Two women, two unbelieving spouses. Sometimes the woman is more respectful to the one who treats the husband who treats her worse. What's the difference? The heart, the person. What's the what's the summary of all this? Some people think they need a better marriage or a better wife to change. All they need to glorify God is to have less health problems. And since they're victims, their focus will be on changing external things circumstances, other people. In all of these things that I'm saying when I make myself out to be a victim, what I'm saying is I don't need God. I don't need a savior. What I need is a different past. What I need is different parents. I need different circumstances. I need an exorcism. I'm not a problem. I'm a victim and the problems are out there. What a hopeless position. What a hopeless position because you can't change any of those things. And God doesn't promise that those things will change. So you are what? Just left to suffer with no no solution, no hope? You can't change who your parents were. You can't change what other people do. You can't control your circumstances. You're not God. You may have suffered much. You may have been the victim of terrible things. You may have been mistreated and wrong. But you are not a victim of how you respond to those things. Instead of playing into Satan's hands and making yourself a victim, focus on your own actions, your own response, and seek to glorify God in what you actually can control. It's easy to blame circumstances. It's easy to blame different people. Or you could do, I could literally come up with a million examples of this. The problem is not your circumstances. The problem is not your parents. What has happened to you? The problem is the individual or person who responds to difficult circumstances in a sinful way. 
And at the root of all of these incorrect, sinful responses to difficult circumstances is a heart that is blaming God. Just like Adam. I wouldn't be so angry, bitter, anxious, etc. if it weren't for my parents, wife, kids, family, job, illness, the circumstances that you gave me. It was the woman you gave me. It was the parents you gave me. It was the spouse you gave me. It was the cancer you gave me. Victim. It's not even my fault. It's actually your fault. And here we are back at the garden again. Nothing has changed. The excuses have changed. But the solution hasn't changed. After all, it's God who is sovereign over traffic. Who determined who your parents were? Who was sovereign over your past? Is it not God? So in conclusion, you are never a victim of what you do. And if you find yourself today losing the battle for your mind, tempted to blame your circumstances, your spouse, etc., for your actions, today is the day to biblically take responsibility. It is better news for you to say, you know what? This is my fault. My anxiety is my fault. And you know what I'm going to do? Instead of blaming everybody else for how I'm acting, for the first time maybe, I'm going to start taking responsibility for it. And I'm going to confess it. And I'm going to cry out to God in repentance to save me from that. Because as soon as you realize that you're worse than you think you are, the sooner you realize that you need Jesus more than you thought you did. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and died the death that your sin deserved. And so as we realize I'm worse than I thought I was, I can begin to take captive the thoughts that I have that it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. No, you're doing it now. And there could potentially be someone in here right now saying, he doesn't understand what I've gone through. You don't know what's happened to me. You don't know who I live with. I don't have to know. But as soon as you start to blame everyone else, Adam and Eve, instead of running toward grace, ran away from grace. They tried to cover up their own sin with their own fig leaves. And God said, no, he pursued them. God is pursuing you maybe in this moment. Maybe some of you now are saying, I've always played the victim. That's the one thing that's kept me from ever even coming to Christ really it's because I've, I've, I've never viewed anything as my fault. And God is saying, well, then I didn't come to save you. What a terrifying reality. But if you own what you've done and you say, you know what? No, I am the problem. And what I've done is my fault. And what I've done is what is putting enmity between me and God. And what I am doing now or what I have done is the reason why my spiritual relationship with God is hindered. Now is the moment where you can say, no more. I'm going to confess. I'm going to own up that I'm not a victim of what I do. It's all my fault. And now I'm going to go to the God of grace who loves to die for and save people who are guilty. God loves to save sinners. And now is the moment you can repent and turn back to him and find the grace that's always been there and freely offered to those who confess and repent. 1 John 1, 9. Today is the day to take your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, to stop running from God's grace, to stop slamming the door in the face of the grace being presented to you and hiding behind a false shield of self-righteousness and victimhood, today is the day to find forgiveness and righteousness in Christ and what he has done for you. Today might be the day of salvation. And if you reject this offer of grace, today, that is being presented to you at this moment, on the day of judgment, there will be no one to blame. 
but yourself. Let's pray. God, thank you that your grace is for us sinners. The problem is, God, we often try to convince ourselves that we don't need it by convincing ourselves that it's not our fault and we've done nothing wrong. It's not easy to admit that we're bad. It's not easy to admit that it's my fault. In fact, it's almost impossible, apart from your grace, even helping us to do that. But Lord, I pray that this church will not be a church of self-righteous victims who don't actually need Jesus. Because there's more life and more hope and more grace in accepting our deep need, accepting responsibility for what we've done. So Lord, I pray that you would use this message to confront and convict those who need to be convicted. I pray, Lord, that it would be used to encourage and exhort those who need to be encouraged or exhorted, to strengthen those who may be weak. And Lord, we rejoice that you did come to save bad people, which is what we are. And Lord, we just ask you for the grace to really take what we learned today and apply it to our lives and help us to be less likely to hide behind a wall of victimhood because we don't want to cut off, cut ourselves off from grace. We need more grace. And that comes through that, through recognizing our responsibility and turning to you for help from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.